Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. In our religiously and politically charged culture, we very much need again to hear the words of Jesus on this subject. I'm always quite amazed when people say the Word of God isn't very relevant. That usually comes from the lips of those who do not know the Word uh, very well. Uh, Jesus speaks directly in this passage to what you've seen in the media this past week and the previous weeks. What is a Christian response to a religious and politically charged culture? Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way to God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray together. Father, again, by your word and spirit, would you speak to our hearts and would you transform us by your grace for your glory? Uh, Fathers, we live in a religiously and politically charged culture. As we still see vividly images from the screen of the past several weeks, teach us and work in us ways in which as believers in Christ, we can respond, that we might live as bright and shining stars with the backdrop of a dark and depraved generation. Work that grace in and among us for your glory and for the good of our neighbors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you want to start a lively discussion among dinner guests, just bring up the subject of religion or politics. Wave a Trump or Biden banner and and see the response you'll get in the streets. Nothing is more polarizing in our culture today than the subjects of religion and politics. We live in an extremely volatile climate. And just underneath the surface of the banner of coexist and postmodern tolerance is an anger and a hatred, a resentment and a distrust for anyone who holds a view other than our own. We've seen this on the screens. We've heard the yelling and the screaming. We've seen the fists and the throwing of bottles and rocks and the burning of buildings. But as volatile as our situation has been in our nation these past several weeks, this was a typical day in much of ancient Palestine. 
The, the tensions constantly rose high. There was a political and religious explosion just on the verge. Luke tells us that in response to Jesus' last parable, the scribes and, and the priests sought to lay hands on him. Mark, in his gospel account, tells us it was the Pharisees and Herodians who also had gathered there. The Pharisees were the religious purists, the nationalists. The Herodians were religious syncretists. They didn't mind combining other religions. And they, in many respects, were loyal to the Roman officials. The Pharisees were the fundamentalistic, right-wing extremists. And the Herodians were the radical left-wing liberals. They despised each other. They saw the world differently. They argued with each other. They had great disagreement among each other. Almost every issue, every issue except one, their joint hatred of Jesus Christ. And so Luke opens this section by reminding us of the previous parable that Jesus had indeed spoken to the religious leaders in Israel and said, you are those wicked tenants who killed the son of the king. And ironically, that's precisely what they were seeking to do at this very moment. In retaliation to the parable, they resorted to espionage and hypocrisy and entrapment. They uh, used flattery and deceit. And wanting to take advantage of the national unrest, they brought up the subject, not of religion or politics, but of religion and politics. They combined the two, and they asked this question of Jesus, hoping to string him up in a dilemma. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? It was a religiously and politically charged question. They just knew they had Jesus against the ropes. And so Jesus answers, and he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. If he had just said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, they would have dubbed him as one who had sided with the Romans, one who had been opposed to the people of God. If he had just said, Render to God, they would have said, See, he's leading an insurrection against the Roman officials. But Jesus didn't answer their yes-no question with a yes-no answer. As he often did with insincere skeptics, he answered with a counter question. He said, give me a coin. Who, whose picture do you see on it? And sure enough, on that coin, the inscription, the, the picture would have been that of Caesar, and the inscription would have read, Caesar, son of Augustus the divine. Jesus doesn't answer with a yes-no answer. He answers with a question, show me, and then he says, whose inscription is on it? It's, it's Caesar's. And then he says this, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Some historians have said that Jesus' statement here is the single most influential political statement in all of history. So let's dive in and look again at Jesus' answer and its implications for us as well in our culture. By holding up that coin... Jesus affirmed the validity of and obedience to governing authorities. The coin on one side bore Caesar's image. The other side read Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The coin itself was an insult to God's people. 
It, it bore the face and the image of the tyrant who ruled over them with an iron fist. And the inscription was his self-deceived self-acclamation of being deity. It was a offense to them, and yet Jesus holds it up. They didn't like their leader. They had not voted for him. They despised his policies. They would have rallies saying, not my emperor. But Jesus holds up this coin. The image is a reminder that it belonged to Caesar and that they owed him. What did they owe him? And what do we as Christians owe our governing officials, whether or not we voted for them, whether or not we agree with their policies, what do we owe? Two key passages in Scripture that teach more on Jesus' teaching here are found in Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2. I believe every citizen who is a Christian should probably turn off Fox and CNN for a while and camp out in Romans 13, and camp out prayerfully in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In Romans 13, Paul asserts the validity of governing authorities that have been established by God. Listen to portions of that scripture. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. I think Phil Riken is correct when he wrote that not, though not unlimited, the authority of human government is legitimate. Why? God has established it. God has ordained it. Paul continues in Romans 13, so... Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Because God himself has established governing and authorities, we owe them something. According to Scripture, what do we as Christians and as citizens in this land owe the governing authorities? First, we owe submission. As far as possible, we are to obey the governing authorities by practicing civil obedience. Second, Paul tells us, we owe taxes. Pay your taxes. Third, we owe honor and respect. Now, this honor and respect may not always be for the personality or the policies of the individual, but of the God-ordained office to which that person holds. It would have been extremely difficult in first century to have honored and respected Caesar for his character, for his policies. And nevertheless, honor and respect are to be given. It's extremely difficult for us today in our own political climate to demonstrate honor and respect for certain individuals in certain offices because we disagree with their personality. It may be godless, and we disagree with their policies. Nevertheless, because of the office that they hold that God has ordained, we owe them honor and respect. You know, today, because of social media, many people feel as though they have the right to speak most disrespectfully and disparagingly about people in authority. 
Let me remind you on the basis of the Word of God, you do not, and I do not. We're called by God to demonstrate honor and respect for those who are in office. Kent Hughes put it well. Jesus assumes the validity of the secular state and its demands, even when controlled by a man who thinks he is God. Welcome to the first century Roman Empire. Fourth, we owe our prayerful support. Paul, in writing the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, said this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. My friend Rick Phillips, who pastors Second Presbyterian Church just down the road in Greenville, said that when you're praying for governing officials from the pulpit, you should pray in such a way that the people, no matter who's in, uh, in office, the people should think you voted for them. It, it's not this, oh Lord, please save that scoundrel, that worthless representative. No, we pray, even as we pray, with a sense of respect for those whom God has placed in authority. We are to plead and pray on their behalf. So what do we owe? We owe submission. We owe taxes. We owe honor and respect. We owe our prayers. And finally, we owe participation in public life. While the church and the pulpit are not political platforms, nevertheless, the believer in Jesus is called to go into the culture as salt and as light for the glory of Christ and for the gospel of grace. As individual Christians, we must engage the culture. We are, according to Paul in 1 Timothy, to live peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified lives in the community. But to be peaceful and quiet is not a call to retreat. Christians don't retreat. We're called to move into the culture with the gospel of grace. We, we don't retreat. This call to be quiet and peaceful is a matter of temperament. We're to engage the culture with non-combative language, with a non-argumentative chip on our shoulder, but to engage the conversation with our conversation seasoned with grace and kindness and respect. That's the manner in which we are to engage a very hostile culture. John McNeil, who is a leading scholar of John Calvin, said this about Christian involvement in the culture. No responsible Christian can be without concern for civil government. Political indifference on the part of the Christian is not a mark of superior piety, but a defective ethics. As Christians, we are called to live peaceful, quiet, godly lives in the culture for the glory of our King of grace, the Lord Jesus himself. And so when we see the anarchy and the riots in the street, the disregard and disrespect for authority, we're seeing on television and the social media an ungodly response. A post-Christian, post-modern culture that will eventually self-destruct. The Christian is to march to the beat of a different drummer, to the beat of Jesus, who's reminding us in this passage that he himself, by holding up this coin, 
is establishing civil authority and telling his followers how we are to respond in a godly fashion to that authority. But we also see by holding up this coin, Jesus also affirms something else. The transcending and the transcendence of and obedience to God's authority. There is a higher throne. When Jesus asked for the coin, the inscription and the image was a painful reminder to the people that Rome ruled the day. But Jesus was also saying, God rules Rome. Render to God the things that are God. That goes for every king and ruler and representative and president and dictator and czar on the planet. They are to bend the knee and bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords because the, any authority that Caesar possessed, that any civil authority has, is from God. It's a derived authority, an authority subjected to the ultimate authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so all rulers are to respond to that highest authority, the higher throne to whom all humanity must submit, and that is God himself. It is not the local and state and national leaders to whom we must pay our utmost honor and respect. It is not the Supreme Court that is the ultimate highest court in the land. It is to God that every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. God's authority transcends all, and therefore to Him belongs our utmost reverence, awe, respect, and submission. It's the transcendence of God's authority over every other human institution that calls us at times when God's authority is challenged and where man's law transcends God's law, cuts against it, that we at those rare moments in history have the right to civil disobedience. In the first century, the religious authorities told the apostles, do not speak publicly in Jesus' name. Do not proclaim publicly the lordship of Jesus anywhere. To which Peter and the other apostles respectfully replied, we must obey God rather than man. Why? Why was this their response? Because while they were called to obey civil authorities as far as possible, God's authority transcends all, and so our obedience must be to Him. There is a higher throne. But by holding up that coin, Jesus is not only teaching with regards to our response to authority, but I also believe he's teaching regarding the allegiance of our hearts. Where do our hearts' allegiance truly lie? Render to God that which is God's. When Jesus held up that coin, and he asked whose image is on it, what inscription is on it, he could have, in a very real sense, pointed to any human being gathered there that day and said something and asked something very similar. Whose image is impressed upon him? Whose likeness is inscribed upon her? In whose image have you been created? 
The scriptures tell us that all humanity has been created in the image of God. That's why all lives matter, especially those who have been misused and abused throughout history. Every single individual human being on this planet has been created in the image of God and therefore must be treated with kindness and dignity and respect. I've shared with you before, even when you're frustrated in the Walmart line and the checkout lady is getting everything wrong with the person's order in front of you and you finally get there, you should treat her in such a way that when you walk out that door, she says, my, didn't he or didn't she treat me well? Why? Because we know something. She's been created in the image and likeness of God. You see, by virtue of creation, that image of God is his imprint and stamp of ownership on all of humanity. So what do we owe him? Render to God that which is God's. The answer is really quite simple. Everything. Our life, our breath, everything comes from him. And if that's true of one who's been created in the image of God... How much more so for those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God that we owe to Him everything. Paul is able to say in light of the finished work of Christ, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Well, there's the image, God's imprint of ownership on every single one of us. But what about the inscription? You know, when you, you hold up a quarter, on, you, you've got the image of George Washington, but there's also an inscription, in God we trust. And there's one on the back in Latin I can't pronounce. There's an inscription on there. What might be the inscription for the believer? We've seen the image created in the image and likeness of God, though it's been scarred and marred and abused, it's still there. What might the inscription be upon you? The Bible doesn't come right out and tell us, but I can't help but think one of them might be the familiar phrase in the Old Testament. Simply this. Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. In fact, the word for Christians in the New Testament is saints. Hagias. Holy ones. Set apart by God's grace and for His glory. That means... Everything that I do is to be rendered to God. Everything is to be devoted to Him. Everything I think, everything I say, everything I do, everything I long for should have this inscription emblazoned upon it. Holy, holy unto the Lord. It was Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister of the Netherlands in 1905, that that stated this now somewhat familiar statement among many Reformed Christians. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It belongs to Him. And again, how much more so as believers who've not only been created in His image, but but have been redeemed by the blood of Christ to be able to say, All I am. All I have, holy, Father, holy, holy unto you. That's what Jesus is teaching. By holding this coin up and saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God, the things to God that belong to him, honor him 
with your lives. Honor him with all that you have. But you know, my heart is not naturally geared towards submission. The affections of my heart and the allegiance of my heart are often led astray, and I hear this call of Jesus, and I realize I fall woefully, woefully short. But I'm thankful for one who did not. I'm thankful for one who demonstrated in his life and in his death both a submission to the governing authorities and a submission to the authority of his heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, Jesus honored and obeyed both human authority, governing authorities, and God's authorities. He submitted himself to both the corrupt religious leaders of his day, the godless governing officials of his day. He submitted himself to them. You know, we struggle. I, I would submit to whoever's in charge, whoever's representative, who's ever the president or vice president. I would submit to them and show them honor if they just deserved it in my eyes. But you know, the Son of Man did not do that. Caesar is reigning. Godless Nero is just around the corner who would light Christians up to give light to his gardens. And Jesus showed respect, honor, and submission. If the Son of Man, with all authority in heaven and earth, who had even given that authority to these pitiful leaders, could submit himself, how much more so ought we as those who are followers of Jesus, seek to do so. Our refusal to show respect and to submit as far as possible to governing officials is contrary to the Spirit of Christ and unbecoming the character of a Christian in our culture. The Son of Man, with all authority, submitted Himself even to corrupt governing and religious authorities. But thankfully, he also submitted himself to the authority of his heavenly Father. You see, in eternity past, the Father and the Son entered into uh, an eternal covenant. A covenant of agreement where the Father said, I'm setting my sight on the elect. I'm setting my sight on a people who will be redeemed, but they must be redeemed by your blood. And the Son, in submission to the Father, willingly took on that task. And in time and space and history, came and took on human flesh. Where he not only submitted himself to the governing officials, but he submitted himself to the Father's official. You hear it in the garden, do you not? Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus' willingness to submit himself to the governing officials and the heavenly Father led him to the cross where we find hope and mercy and forgiveness and grace. And although we've been created in God's image and that image has been greatly tarnished and twisted and warped in redeeming us by grace through faith in His Son, God says, I'm going to begin to shine up that coin I'm going to begin in your life to demonstrate a reflection to a watching world what it means to 
become like me. And so scripture reminds us in Ephesians and in Colossians that what God is doing is he's restoring that image more and more to the image and likeness of Christ himself. And what of that inscription? Saints, holy ones, holy to the Lord. It's being more clearly reflected in our lives as well. And because of Jesus' submission, there's also another inscription. One that's not just born on the Christian, holy to the Lord. But there's another inscription born on the very heart of God himself. For he's purchased you with the blood of his own son. Isaiah reminds us of that inscription, not upon us, but upon God. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands, God says. Jesus says, I've engraved you on the palms of my nail-scarred, resurrected hands. And so with Augustus Toplady, we can sing, My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Or we can sing as we will in a moment with the Gettys. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. All because of our Savior's willingness to submit himself both to the governing authorities and the authority of God the Father, which led him to the cross. All because of our Savior's willingness to honor and obey both that led him down the path of our salvation. May those of us who've not only been created in God's image, but redeemed by his grace, begin to reflect in a political and social and religious explosive society begin to reflect the teaching of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the God the things that are God's so that he might receive the ultimate praise and honor and adoration. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we find your teaching absolutely and utterly impossible. Every time we open your word, we, we know and you know our reactions when we see the images on Facebook and in the media and on television. Our hearts well up in rebellion and hatred and anger for those who oppose us. You know our heart's attitude towards political leaders. You know how we even buck your own will often in our lives. And so we thank you for the one who honored both, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in so doing, that honoring of the civil authorities and the highest throne led him to the cross where we find grace and mercy and forgiveness. And therein might we also find the transforming power to live lives before a watching world of those bright and shining stars with the backdrop of a dark and depraved generation for the glory and honor of Christ. Teach us this week what it means, what it looks like in our hearts, in our homes, in our workplace.
to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. For your glory and by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.